This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hi, you're listening to The Advice Show. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Zach Sharif. I'm joined here by my fellow reporters, Chloe Malay and uh, Nicola Blackburn. How are you both? Very well. Doing well, thank you. Thank you. you? I'm good. I'm all right. Bit cold, but um, I'm all right. It is December. Um, Yeah, so this is a bit different from us. Uh, There aren't any guests apart from the two reporters I've just mentioned. Um, We're just going to be doing a recap of the year, highlighting our favorite articles, the big moments for the NMA team. um, And yeah, what a year it's been. It has been um, very interesting. Though. I can recall off the top of my head three fiscal events, I think. Three yeah. prime ministers. Um, yeah. In coming off succession. a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Indeed. And having to come into the office to report on all of this. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's obviously the worst part of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, to kick us off, um, just generally, have you found the year? I mean, if I'm right, Chloe, you joined in February. I did join in February. Uh, and uh, Nicola, you joined a bit before that. When mm-hmm. did you join? Mm-hmm. September 2021. Okay. Okay, cool. And um, since you guys since you guys have both been here, what's kind of the pace been like? Has it? Have you found it quite quick as soon as you got here? Particularly you, Chloe, because you joined this year. Um, I feel like the pace was quite slow when I first started because I was kind of getting acquainted with everything (laughs) and because I had no experience in finance at all. I was just learning for the first maybe three months and then it accelerated quite quickly. Um, I think around summer, um, I was expecting summer to be quite quiet, but it really wasn't. It was quite, I don't know how you felt guys, but I thought it was quite um, quite intense and it's kind of just kept that pace um, but it's been really interesting though really interesting year some good stories from everyone um, that we'll be highlighting soon but how have you felt Nicola? Yeah it's it's been yeah it's chopped and changed this year I think um, definitely from the investment side of things it's been a very abnormal year so I think sometimes I've almost felt there's too much to cover because um, you know it's markets have just been so had such an awful time this year Basically, no asset class has been investable or, you know, been delivering um, positive performance for people's portfolios. So I think that's been really challenging for advisors. But then on top of that, as you said, Zach, you have things like new prime ministers, new chancellors coming in, um, kind of unexpectedly introducing new um, policies on on tax and um, <laughs> cutting it, bringing it back. And, and that all impacts markets as well. And I think this year it's impacted them more than um, it has previously. So yeah, it's on the investment side of things, it's been a tricky year, very eventful. Yeah, <laughs> eventful on the platform side as well. I think quite a lot of uh, new developments, we'll be talking about this, but on the white labeling side, et cetera, and some um, some acquisitions. Also, they've struggled a little bit, investment platforms this year. Um, flows have been down for most of them. Um, so we'll see how it goes in 2023. But um, what about you, Zach? Your reporting, Zach was reporting on advice firms. Yeah. yeah. What's well, the industry been like this year? Well, um, kind of a bit of a, a bit of a bit of a whirlwind. Um, so, I mean, it's funny you say um, that um, summers when it picked up. I think, yeah, when I joined, it was yeah, pretty much exactly. I joined in a whirlwind. <laughs> um, but yeah, the advice space has been really exciting for me, and that's something that. I mean, attracted me as I'm sure it attracted you guys to the role, you know, just from financial services generally. Um, but it's been, you know, pretty much, um, 
an acquisition a week, <laughs> if if not two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, the pace of private equity continue to be quite outstanding because um, um, we've been compiling as well, just for our own records, um, a list of uh, private equity backed firms. Um, and that seems to every time um, I talk to my editors about it, uh, we seem to all not know what the number is because it's always increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when I think we first compiled that list, it was around 33. Now it's closer to 40, 38, 39. People still have discrepancies about it. Um, and that's really exciting um, because it's just such a, a different space. And of course, the industry is such that whoever you talk to tells you polar opposite stories mm-hmm. um, about what that means for the industry. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think the advice industry has... I mean, yeah, like I mentioned before, it's all intertwined with politics. And I think it's the I think that there's been a case for a couple of years, maybe that um, that financial advice is an industry where it's not been too shaken up by grave political events surrounding it. But of course, this year's just blown out of the water just because it, you know, you've seen what's happened when we get that um, when we get such a such a turn in economic policy so swiftly. Yeah. Anyway, um, I gotta. I'll stop talking about myself for a second. <laughs> I know that that's. I find that quite hard. To yeah, do. quite difficult. Yeah, right? I do. <laughs> um, and um, I think we'll kick off and talk about our first story then. Um, so we're all gonna each talk about um, just stories throughout the year, obviously, and uh, our own stories that we like. Um, and I'll kick that off with Chloe because pretty much as Chloe joined. Um, well, a couple she, months after, but yeah. A couple months after. Okay. Well, give me two months. Okay. Um, she came with a pretty brilliant story. Um, and uh, yeah, take it away, please, Chloe. Yeah. So when I first joined, um, I, well, as I said, I didn't know much about finance. Um, but I just mentioned in passing to, to Nicola um, that when I was a student, I used to, to work um, for a lead generate, generation company, I was called calling um, lawyers mainly, and I was saying that I was calling on behalf of St. James's Place. Um, and when I joined, I realized that we'd written quite a lot about SJP, that it's a very big wealth manager, um, and that what's happening there interests our readers, obviously. And I just mentioned it to Nicola and said, I don't know if this would be interesting by any chance and she was like oh you should maybe talk to the editors I feel like it is um and yeah and so I started working on it I started reaching out to the people that I used to work with so the other student called callers um and build building this story essentially um and yeah so it's a story about um this called calling factory we decided to call it in the headline um where students were paid 10 pounds an hour we're working from someone's living room in Guildford (laughs) um and we yeah we were we had to go by the name Sarah the female callers had to go by the name Sarah and we were calling um lawyers at really big companies like DLA Piper, Clifford Chance, et cetera, and trying to get them to book an appointment with an SJP advisor. Um, And we were told that this was a very kind of secret operation. um, And we were not allowed to know the the name of the advisors that we were kind of working for. Um, And yeah, so I I wrote this story in April. Um, We had quite a lot of comments on it. That I was reading back earlier, um, and yeah, it was it was interesting to to work on, and definitely kind of taught taught me a little bit about the sort of um, debates that there are in the industry around you know independent and restricted advice and um, lead generation as a whole, 
which is quite you know kind of contentious subject sometimes um but yeah was quite quite happy with with that so it was about yeah two months after I joined can I ask how SJP reacted and to what extent would you say they were willing to take some responsibility for um you know working with a, a cold calling company that you know in a way that wasn't entirely perhaps um well, you know, a little bit frowned upon. Yeah, yeah. Well, they um, so two months after, so we published this in in April, and in June, um, they took disciplinary action against the advisors involved, but they did not tell us what that disciplinary action entailed. So we actually have no idea if it was like kind of just a slap on the wrist or or actually you know being made redundant or whatever it was. We don't know what that. Um, discipline action entailed and we don't know how many they didn't tell us how many advisors were involved um because that's something that we didn't know in the original story because as I said we were not um being made privy to the the actual you know um the the people that we were working for so we just had the the initials of of the advisors so I actually didn't know how many people I was booking appointments on behalf of um so we don't know how many advisors we don't know how they were disciplined but they were apparently disciplined but yeah I have no idea yeah it's it's interesting I think um because um you know this is a time when and part of the reason why it's been so exciting just the the industry generally is that it's a time of massive change right and part of that change is um a cultural shift and it's quite interesting because that story is seems like it's from a different era it seems like it's from 10, 15 years ago, not mm. right now. So it's quite interesting how that works um, because, I, when, because you know, looking back over your story and, and thinking about it, I did a couple of other stories came to mind that I've been re working on recently um, of just similar things with how um, clients are approached um, mm. and the rules and regulations uh, in that um, and, and how important it is. Do you feel like the industry, do you feel like the same as me where that you're surprised by that story still happening this year or do you think the space is moving in a different direction i i think i'm not surprised um that there's something that is still happening i think definitely moving in the right direction um i think the most surprising part of it was definitely the script well you can go back and read the, the script that we're using but it, it sounds like it's from the 80s you mean the script when you were the calling script, yeah calling the, the lawyer script uh, I, was I have so, the script <laughs> it's really really funny when you think back um, but so I think it was particularly um, that's that's surprising that's happening now. But I think the practice of deceiving clients and and all of that I don't think that's particularly surprising. I think financial services is such a a big and complex industry that you're obviously going to have some rogue um, players in there. And I think we're never going to run out of things to report on in terms of you know dodgy things happening. Um, so it's definitely a little bit disappointing, especially when there's just been so much regulation being introduced and some people kind of still evading that. Um, but yeah, it's not particularly um, surprising. But I think we should move on to, so this was April, we should move on to the to May. And that's when Nicola had a really interesting story about sustainable funds holding a US company that was linked to unlawful care. So Nicola, do you wanna? Explain a bit to us about what that story yeah, was. Yeah, sure. So this story was it was it was quite investigative, um, but the the crux of it was brought to me by a financial advisor who who focuses on um ethical investments 
Um, that's Chris at Airs Punchard. Um, and he found three sustainable, well, he found actually more than three sustainable funds, though some of them were passive funds. So we focused on the active ones that invested in um, a US, a, an enormous US health insurer called Centene. Um, and they are not only active in the US, they um, own, um, you know, NHS practices here. So there's a lot of questions about kind of the, you know, that link to this about the privatization of the NHS and the fact that this big big private US company um, owns NHS practices. But anyway, that's who they are. Um, and these three sustainable funds hold this company. If you do so much as, you know, Google recent news stories about this company, you will find um, several cases of quite shocking care. Um, this company primarily provides, um, you know, healthcare to underinsured or uninsured individuals. So a lot of people in um, kind of poorer socioeconomic areas in the US um, use Centene services. Um, so, you know, I think we found it quite controversial that this company was held in sustainable funds. Um, I think it was one or two of the funds um, were focused on sustainable healthcare as well. Um, so again, um, it just, this story raised questions about, um, you know, how we how we interpret ESG and sustainability, how we define it. Um, and yeah, we, we, we approached the, the companies that have the funds, which I can talk a bit about as well. And you know what their argument was for, for yeah, holding how this company. did the asset managers react? Yeah. To that? Yeah. It was interesting. So one of them was, um, web, web asset management. Um, they were very, very responsive. They, they told us that they'd been in discussions with Centene for some time. It's also worth noticing that this position in Centene was quite small in all of the funds. Mm -hmm. So it was, um, like one one and you know 1.3 percent i think that the largest was just over two percent of the funds portfolio so small positions theoretically if the funds exited those positions you know it's not going to cause a massive disruption to the portfolio right so it's not not hard to exit those positions anyway so what webb said was that they'd been in discussions with centene for some time um and they had unanswered questions for centene about um, what they were doing to improve their services um centene had other you know they had 170 um, complaints about corporate misconduct, I think, filed against them since the early 2000s. So it's not just these kind of cases of unlawful, you know, what one person called unlawful care. Um, so they, they'd they been engaging with Centene quite actively, but they still held it. The other two asset managers, JP Morgan and HSBC, um, declined or didn't respond to mm. a, a request for comment from us. Um, so that was quite unsatisfactory i think yeah. i mean centene again is a, is a huge company um and yeah I, I i think that was quite unsatisfactory that they didn't yeah. want to engage with the with the question and what do you think this say this says this particular story says more generally about you know the this field of, of sustainable yeah and, and you know the, the holdings that they have that are not you know that you know, most people would say that's not yeah. <laughs> that's not sustainable at all. That's, that's a that's not, a, yeah. It's yeah. A, it's a huge question. I mean, so this story came out in um, it was May, um, and twenty twenty two. Just to contextualize a bit, twenty twenty two has been a really tough year for a lot of sustainable funds. I think because most of them are global equity funds or or just equity funds, and equities have had an awful year in the first half twenty twenty two. Equity markets globally crashed basically, um, and so. ESG and sustainability funds had a great 2021 um, because inflation was, you know, raging. Um, monetary policy wasn't tight. Um, these funds did really well. And in 2022, they didn't. So 
there were already these kind of, I think people, advisors certainly were losing interest a bit in mm. sustainable funds. Then you get cases like this where um, more and more questions over the past few years, I think, have been raised about what sustainability really is. And at this point in May, it, ha- it wasn't very regulated. Basically, anyone could slap a sustainable label on a fund. And from a regulatory perspective, there wouldn't be issues. I mean, they might have to explain it to people invested, you know, to stakeholders in the fund. If they were like, well, well, why do you invest in all this? I thought this fund was sustainable, blah, blah, blah. But from a regulatory perspective, they could do it theoretically. Since then, um, the FCA, the regulator here has really taken steps to, I think, crack down on that. Um, They have said that they're going to start regulating ESG ratings providers early next year. They've also release proposals for a sustainable disclosure um, framework for funds and fund labeling, which is huge. Um, So I think, you know, with that in mind, funds like these would face questions from the regulator now or or very soon if these um, proposals come to fruition about their holdings and about, you know, what, what kind of measurement tools they use for sustainability and things like that. So yeah, I think that's kind of where this story sits in the broader kind of um, debate around ESG funds. I think the one other thing that this story raises questions about is, you know, why JP Morgan and HSBC yeah. wouldn't wouldn't comment on this. Mm. Um, and HSBC in particular has um, faced other accusations around um, its advertising yeah. and things that certain members of staff have said about ESG um so it has it has a lot to answer for I think personally Mm, yeah um so yeah that's a bit about the ESG side of things um let's fast forward to July when Zach here joined new model advisor uh (laughs) in the hottest month of the year I believe it was Um, yeah actually yeah my first two days I think we're 42 degrees and and 40 degrees um which is a far cry now from minus two getting in this morning Um, true yeah (laughs) Uh, but yeah, it was, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a kind of whirlwind time as well. Um, I think we were just that it, weirdly enough, actually, I think when I joined immediately, it was the calm before the storm, mm. um, because the storm that hit was, you know, Liz Truss and mini budget, um, and sort of Boris, Boris going, well, get your timeline in order. Um, <laughs> Boris Truss, Rishi, um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was um, it was a big time, and if we if we continue with the chrono- chronology as well, um, it was also a massive uh, acquisition about a month later for you, Chloe. Yeah, mm. so it's not an acquisition to. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry, oh, completely messed that up. Um, uh, well, a partnership, a, partnership. A, uni- a, a unique partnership, a unique partnership. A unique partnership. Month later, um, so yeah, I'm not I'm I'm not an SJP reporter here at NMA. I do um, investment platforms. You wouldn't think. So, <laughs> you wouldn't think, <laughs> but I cover investment uh, platforms, and um, this was my I think the the biggest story that I got this year, um, which is that. Um, the national advice from Fairstone partnered with with FNZ, um, the platform technology provider, um, to um, launch its own white label platform. So it's interesting because it was the first time that FNZ had gone direct 
with an advice firm. So FNZ provides platform tech for really big platforms like Aberdeen and Quilter and Nucleus is moving on there as well. Um, it's it's a really huge, huge company. And usually they work as a intermediary rather than going direct. So it was the first time they'd done that. Um, obviously that raised questions about how that would impact their relationship with their existing clients, which are, as I mentioned, Aberdeen, Quilter, et cetera. And um, we haven't heard too much about what they, um, you know, how what they think about this this new partnership. Um, but the the CEO of, of FNZ, Adrian Durham, um, mentioned that his vision for for the industry was that his platform clients would also provide white label zones within their business, so to speak, um, because he sees that there's really you know increasing demand. Um, for that particular model among consolidators and, and large advice firms because they want to kind of take control of, of the pricing and, and the branding and everything um, um, with that platform. And because there's more and more large advice firms and consolidators kind of growing, um, I think that's going to be a model that's probably going to become more and more popular. But there's quite quite a big debate around that and and the fact that advisors are not, that not platform experts so yeah. i think that's, it's that's a structural debate, debate right yeah in terms of who does what and who you trust to do what basically. yeah 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 exactly so i'm thinking i mean it's interesting you say you know um that i feel like this will become more popular moving forward because mm -hmm. speaking to it's very contentious but speaking to a lot of advisors um uh, you get competing opinions, but yeah, I'm thinking specifically of, you know, um, Ascot Lloyd um, a couple of months ago, which I believe you broke as well, Yeah. Um, of of them going, of them launching their own platform as well. Yeah. Um, boys, and yeah. where do you, not where do you stand on the debate, we're very impartial here. <laughs> yeah. um, incredibly impartial <laughs> at a new model advisor. Um, but what do you think are the merits um, of this FNZ deal and, you know, deals such as the Ascot Lloyd one? Well, I think um, what's interesting with the FNZ and Fairstone deal is that FN, um, Fairstone don't see this new platform as replacing their existing platform offering. It's just an add-on. It's a, it's a little extra thing to target a particular market. Whereas I think for other firms, other large advice firms that I've spoken with, they their white label platform they see as something that they're going to put all their clients on so i think those are two different models to kind of start off with i think one of i would say that a lot of those deals they come out of two things they come out of some some sort of frustration with the service that's provided with existing platforms and also because as you grow bigger you want to take more control of kind of all aspects yeah. of your business so i think those are the two kind of main drivers and as, as you say, we're very impartial. I see two sides of the debate. Um, I think we'll, we'll see because those, I think there's been kind of a big emphasis on white labeling this year, um, but the the deals have not really been fully completed or they're still kind of in the, in the process of being built. So we won't really know what it's like until um, those things actually, you know, come to fruition. And then we can see what the issues are, what the opportunities are. Um, but I think, yeah, the main sort of um, point of contention is the fact that advisors are not platform experts. It's a matter of expertise and whether or not they're able to, to take on all that responsibility, mm -hmm. which is regulatory, but also kind of technical, but, but that remains to be seen. So we'll, we'll, um, 
you know, we'll see in 2023 how that goes for Ascot Lloyd and, and Fairstone and all the other big advice firms that I'm sure will also want a white label deal at some point. I just want to quickly add that it's interesting because I, it, this seems to be happening on the exact same timeline as white labeling of investment solutions is happening. Oh, right, yeah. It's it's it feels like something that's coming but isn't quite in the works yet. Um a lot of like pension funds and institutional investors will use like outsourced chief investment officers to make them white labeled investment solutions, mm. but it's just starting to happen noises are being made in the kind of wealth and financial advice space right and i've heard from one um, investment solutions provider and asset manager that has said um you know we are developing a um kind of white labeled bespoke investment provision service but it's it's being developed and it will happen next year but it's um there's another player called willis towers watson who has um, made investment portfolios for Atomos, which is formerly Sandland mm. Wealth. And that was, you know, there aren't many like that in that space. But it's, it's it, this white labeling is is across platforms and across investment solutions, I think. So yeah. it's for advice firms. So it's, it's something that both of us get to keep an eye exactly. on with our patches. Exactly. Fun. Maybe we'll get to collaborate next year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then in August, so that was in August, FNZ Fairstone thing. Um, in August as well, um, um, our editor, deputy editor Jack Gilbert, was featured on uh, BBC Panorama on a um, documentary called Billion Pound Savings Scandal um, on investment scams. Um, so did you guys watch it? What did you think? Basically, what happened here was um, investors were promised returns of 10% uh, in Blackmore Bond, uh, supposedly to invest in a series of UK property developments. Um those developments, of course, were never built. Um, and, you know, we'll chat about the documentary um, both of you. But, um, I mean, um, it was kind of astounding in the documentary to see, for Jack to actually go and see what was supposed to be built. And it's just a car park or a building site. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, in one of his, uh, certainly when we did a pod, we did an earlier episode of the advice show about this, me and Jack, um, certainly it was apparent from that conversation with him how um how emo- how emotional it made him feel and angry um and i think he described it in in an article he wrote about it as heartbreaking uh, and i think that's easy to lose sight of when we're writing these stories um mm. particularly particularly stories when people have invested an awful lot of money um in how difficult these things can be um yeah. but of course the story was fascinating um yeah. because also it you know calls into question a lot of the regulator the fca was warned midway through basically when this was happening um was sent an email notifying them about what was happening um so jack's written extensively about um you know the their approach to whistleblowers mm-hmm. um and what needs to change from that in future mm-hmm. um but um but yeah what did you make of it nicola yeah, I mean, I would echo everything you said and, and only add that, yeah, you know, weekly the FSCS publishes a new um, um, financial services firm that has failed and undoubtedly, you know, customers who are in com- owed compensation um, might only get some of, of what they are owed and mm. perhaps years later. So it was it was very powerful to see um, Jack speak to actual victims who had lost their life savings and infuriating to see what... Um, the people behind the Blackmore Bond were doing now, still very much alive and kicking. I think that moves us to September and that's um, Zach's story. Uh, Yeah, it does. Um, So I think this was, so this kind of links with my, if I'm allowed to jump the timeline a little bit. Oh, go go for it, go for it. This (laughs) links to my uh, story in December as well because it was the same firm. Um, Essentially, it's it's, um, the, the lead up to possible sale 
Um, so this started in September. And I think that's why I've selected it here just because um, I'm, uh, from my own personal perspective as a journalist, it's great to see how the story develops. And I think that go goes and trends with the industry as well as something that happened months ago comes can come back around again or whatever. Um, so that was quite interesting. But yeah, I think... Um, I think that process, you know, was quite exciting for me. I mean, so this story in particular, um, it was, uh, it's about the network Tenet, um, one of the pre-RDR legacy networks that's been around for decades now. Um, so it was quite a, quite a historic um, network that I noticed pretty early on that a lot of, had a lot of big shareholders in it. So Aviva, Aegon, uh, Aberdeen. Um, and then, so the story kicked off when uh, we noticed that Aegon and Aberdeen had, collectively recognized the 15 million pounds impairment on their shares um so instantly that kind of raises alarm bells as to why why is it impaired and no one will tell you why it's impaired um because the reasons might not be beneficial to them this um, was aberdeen and Aegon's yes, shares, right in right, tenet, right. yeah um so yeah and 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 talking rounds you know speaking to a lot of industry people you get a sense that tenants activities haven't been the best for a while um, just in terms of, uh, you know, they've, they've made a loss um, recently um, and, uh, you, you know, they were propped up by shareholders as well um, a couple of months ago, uh, not a couple of months ago, but in the last annual report, they were propped up by shareholders by about 14 million, um, which is why the loss wasn't significant then. But also it speaks to another story, uh, which... Um, I believe uh, isn't on our timeline to talk about, but is a big story this year, uh, which was the British Steel uh, transfer redress scheme that essentially that, that came about. Um, and one of the things that Tenet has uh, unfortunately recognised is it has severe liabilities um, that it's going to have to pay out through this scheme. Um, and that's uh, affecting so many firms in the industry, so many big names in the industry. Um, you know, it seemed every few weeks we were seeing British Steel redress, British Steel redress, another firm affected, another firm affected. That's just the scale of it, right? It was more than a thousand steel workers. Um, and I think the um, the final figure um, that the FCA has, has for redress is 49 million pounds. Um, so that'll affect 343 advice firms and offer payouts to more than a thousand steel workers. Um, so that's a massive story. So I think, yeah, for me, it intertwined both of those things. Um, cause I've spoken to a lot of people about the state of networks now at the moment, and you see a lot of advisors with the point of view that they don't, uh, understand the, where the value is in a network anymore, other than the framework through which you can contact loads of people. Um, but even that contact is obviously difficult. Um, because um, if you have a lot of appointed representatives, um, the question is then if the owner of their network changes, why would they keep going? Because the deal that they've now got is far different from the deal that they signed up to. Um, so, yeah, we're seeing that continue to see that with ARs um, having different relationships with their networks and looking to explore other relationships. Can I ask, Zach, um, yes. what kind of can you like what was the sort of size of the stake that you know players like Aberdeen and Aegon had in Tenet? I mean, are we talking like a huge stake at the time? Or so so yeah. So the bigger ones have have about ten or twenty percent. Oh okay. So okay, right. they've got quite big shares in it. <laughs> right. So, so they're going to be really affected by yeah. This kind so of you're thing. sort of which is also you know one of the, one of the reasons why it was so fascinating because you're looking at these. I mean, you know, Aviva. You're looking at these massive names, and you're thinking, why is everyone's? But again, it's this thing of They've all got shares in it from 10, 20 years ago. Um, and then mm. the industry's a very different place now. Very different place. Mm. How are you going to follow up 
on that story, do you think? Um, well, it's, I mean, it's sort of self-explanatory, really. Um, I mean, you know, you look at other legacy networks and you sort of investigate what's going on with them um, mm-hmm. and you find out what's um, what's still making them tick, what makes them different to other networks, uh, what, the, what makes them different to past network that's maybe not doing so well at the moment. Um, and, and yeah, I think you just look at the politics and dynamics between ARs and um, the larger group. Um, and I think that that is always a, a can be a battle of tension. Do you think that one of the issues that there is with networks is that they're so big and so layered that there's kind of a lack of internal scrutiny? Would you say? Um, I, I think some would say that. Um, <laughs> I, I think yeah, some, yeah, they were impartial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm just. I think some would say that definitely. Um, I, I think some. Um, and, and also, there's a there's a thing um, about vertical integration, right? So if you can maximize all the aspects of the value of the business, if you basically own it all um, mm. and all the different layers, the platform, whatever, um, then there's a case for it being very economically viable. But when you don't, it's a different thing. Um, and what's also quite interesting, and I, I'm thinking of several firms at the moment that um, you speak to people about and they say all sorts of things where it seems a bit chaotic um, inside. I remember someone telling me recently with an appointed representative um that um that they hadn't picked they hadn't returned any of their calls for the last three weeks and um, one of the problems with it is that when you have um an employee representative with a network one of the problems that it can that can occur is that it's simply so big um mm. people don't know what's going on um so it's very interesting to see the mm. successful ones that have managed that and how yeah. they've managed that um and also you know the unsuccessful ones and the stories behind those yeah mm, that's true um, but yeah, um, we, uh, that was, yeah, that was my, that was my little story in September. Um, we also had, um, the digital advice firm story in September, Nicola. I was wondering yes. if you could talk a bit about that. Yes. Well, I can, Zach. Are <laughs> 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 you delighted to? <laughs> um, so this was by far the most interesting story and that I, you know, wrote that's this year. And, and that's the only I ever had. Um, in apart its, from in its, yours. Exactly, apart from the SJP <laughs> story. Um, in its, yes, 20 years of history. Uh, no, definitely the most interesting one I worked on this year and um, I had the most fun working on it, I think. And this was in our magazine. Um, it was all about what went wrong for the robo-advice sector um, because you know, back when it started booming, I think, in around, I guess, 2014, 2015, 2016, um, I think people thought that it would sort of close the advice gap. You know, here was cheap advice, um, easily accessible advice that's, again, cheap, um, that, you know, it was a market that a whole load of players started popping up in. Um, A lot of kind of fintech startups, I'd say, but, um, you know, some much bigger names that we know of now, like Nutmeg, and that just didn't happen. Mm. So that's what the story was about. Why didn't that happen? Yeah. And what would you? Why didn't it <laughs> happen? What was the? What were the, the hurdles that the the sector encountered? Yeah. Okay. So I think I mean there were there were many to be honest, but I think there were two big ones. The first was the challenge of profitability, um, because these companies um, were offering advice so cheaply it meant that what they were earning from that advice, from offering that advice, wasn't matching up with the cost for them to onboard new clients. So the the kind of um, effect of that is that, you know, Nutmeg, for example, um, it's over 10 years old as a company. 
um, and it is yet to turn a profit. Um, I think in the last full year, so so in 2021, in that financial year, um, it made an operating loss in the in the millions, um, and that is the story for most major players in the space. So they're just really finding it hard to become profitable. And then the other challenge, which is a little bit more recent, is that um, asset managers and bigger players are moving into the space there. So you, you're getting like vertically integrated robo advice companies um, and the challenge of profitability isn't such a big one for them because they are backed by these companies that have a lot of money. Mm. And um, I think the, the that money is more kind of secured because the robo-advisors are a way for an asset manager to kind of funnel money through their own investment products, you know, through through the robo through the robo advisor they can offer funds that they have. Um so that is, you know, like vertically integrated robo advisors are going to be a huge um competitor for your kind of little fintech startup yeah. um robo advisor. So it's yeah, it's 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 challenging to be a successful robo advice business is what I ultimately yeah. learned. Yeah. And what do you reckon is gonna happen to robo advice? Because I think a couple of those kind of turn from direct to consumer to B two B instead. I think we exactly had, we had Clara Money that decided to turn to B two B. Yes, indeed, you broke that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, what is that going to be the sort of route that they take instead? And because that seems to be much more profitable having that B two B model. Yeah, absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. I think um, a couple of robo advisors, Money Farm is one, Clara Money is is another, um, are turning to business to business partnerships to sort of like find new customer bases for their proposition, um, and also to kind of like yeah go into areas that they might not otherwise have have gone into so this is bad I can't actually remember which one it was but there's one that is partnering with John Lewis to offer kind of ices to essentially like white labeled ices um with John John Lewis Lewis. (laughs) why not why not (laughs) um so yeah and um open money you know partnering with like I think it was an energy provider Mm. um so there's those kind of partnerships that are happening happening um and that's yeah I think the 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 kind of robo advice executives that I spoke to were quite positive about those partnerships that's certainly what um Holly um at, at Open Money said um she was positive that that would help them like turn a profit eventually essentially um the other space that could be interesting for robo advice is the pension space um because i think at the moment we think that digital advice was kind of going to be so not useful for people who had really complex planning needs like you know if they were looking to transfer their pension to a dc scheme or if they you know had kind of um you know if they had kind of family inheritance um you know issues that they needed to talk to their advisor about i mean that this this stuff is really complex and it's not something that you know like a a robot a a computer is necessarily going to be able to help them with but you know by the same token you've got things like the pensions dashboard which is supposedly going to help people consolidate all their pensions and onto one app so there's more like digital advancement in the pension space so i think if they can find a way to tap into that market which as we know is the kind of pensioners and people approaching retirement is the bulk of advisors clients that could be really beneficial to them yeah but we'll see we'll have to see that's we'll the thing yeah exactly we'll have to see. all this is <laughs> happening behind the scenes well 
one thing we will have to see uh, is the development of uh, your career, Miss Nicola Blackburn. Because <laughs> um, I know you're not going to bring it up, so I will bring up that this year yeah. Nicola won an award. Um, she won the Best Newcomer Award at the State Street Institutional Press Awards. Um, and it was, I think, I think the whole NMA team was very proud to very see, proud. very proud yeah, to see you win that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was fantastic. Um, uh, so um, when we wrote that up, we said that you won the award for your analysis of advisors reinventing the 60-40 portfolio amid surging inflation, fluctuated bond prices and low yields prior to, prior to the mini budget chaos in September. I mean, you only need the last four words of that sentence to give an idea of the kind of volatility you were covering. Yeah. What was all of that like? I would just, that's really interesting to hear that back because the tide has completely turned for yeah, bonds since yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. Now they're offering really high yields, but the value of them has dropped. And like less people, I think, want to invest in, in UK corporate and government bonds. So they're looking really unattractive. So that's that, that article I won the award for. Um, so came interesting, out. this was only last month. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that article came out. So the award, I won, I won that last month, I think. Um, and the article came out in February, so a lot has changed since then. What, what was sorry? What was your question, Zach? I can't even remember. <laughs> I think it was a very general question. Um, it was <laughs> it was just about what what it was like covering a lot of volatility. But it's very yeah. interesting your point now of like we're actually in a completely different place now. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. But um, but you know, um, because of course, you know, the mini budget. I mean, and I guess maybe we can talk about this as well. Is that you know it was so it's such a chaotic time for all of us. Yeah. Um, because we're all covering that, of course um because it's funny it's we, about us really yeah, yeah it's not about Nicola <laughs> or, or, or in the slightest um but it's 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 funny because um ordinarily you know um unless they're massive political events we wouldn't cover it because we're of course talking to you our lovely listeners um and um it's only about you know what's relevant for you in the financial and the financial advice sector but of course this this was completely an economic catastrophe um so it wasn't just politics um but um, yeah, it was very interesting because the mini budget obviously threw everything into chaos, Nicola. It did. It did. I think what I'm thinking of looking back at that article now and that it was written in February and that, yeah, there, there have been a couple of, well, that that being the major kind of catastrophe, I think, for, for bonds since then is that you can't, I think some would say that you can't really win with bonds in a portfolio in 2022, which is scary for advisors and scary yeah. for investment managers because that is the asset that is the crux of really cautious investors' portfolios, including people in retirement and retirees. Um, and then not to mention, I mean, it, it, like that mini budget threw up huge issues for pension funds and pension schemes um, that are all, you know, there are ongoing inquiries into what happened now and um they're going to go on for a while i think so last month james published a story he broke the story that the home office with input from the treasury will publish a 400 million pound strategy to tackle financial fraud later this year um this is a huge one um financial advisors uh know more than anyone i think that financial fraud has only been picking up um in recent years um there are scams that are emails based based on phone calls um and through social media which is something we've covered a bit this year as well um so so this is big um james you know very little was kind of said at the time about what this package would look like and what areas of financial fraud it would target specifically but um definitely food for thought um yeah, yeah. and one of many many stories that james has broke this year 
um, and a lot a lot of um, interesting stories on regulation and and politics um so um definitely a very good year for james yeah definitely um but i think that does bring us to to the end of our recap um it was it was a great year for all of us um are you are you guys excited for 2023 buzzing i buzzing. am be more excited. i am yeah yeah are you? Are yeah, you? yeah yeah okay. um i think it'll I think for us it'll comparatively be a little bit more boring compared to compared we can only to the, hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> compared to the um the politic fiasco. Yeah, that's um, it's kind of good and bad when government. there's yeah, it's kind of but good and bad when there's sorry. So no good. Sorry, I was gonna say it's kind of good and bad when there's too much to cover, isn't it? Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so hopefully next year very very little reporting from all of us <laughs> <laughs> i'm kidding <laughs> but we will be back with the advice show in january um as always um you can contact us about this episode on twitter at new model advisor um and um yeah it was um, lovely to, to have a little recap with my colleagues and thank you everybody for listening thank you, thank so you much for, for listening. listening great to chat to you both great to chat to you <laughs> This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk.